And as he drew near, seeing the city, he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, even at least in this day of yours, the things for your peace, but now they were hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you, and ones hostile to you will raise up a rampart to you, and will surround you, and will keep you in on all sides, and will tear you down, and your children in you, and will not leave a stone on a stone, because you did not know the time of your visitation. That is Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. And the whole key to this message this morning is the first verse. As he drew near, seeing the city, he wept over it. This is Jesus weeping over the city. So was he weeping for the city because he knew what was to come upon it? He knew that, that it was going to be absolutely demolished and the people killed and taken into slavery. No, he wasn't weeping for the city. He was weeping for the people. Because any stone and wooden block can be demolished or rebuilt. But the loss of a life unsaved cannot be undone. And... He wept. These were his people. And he knew that they were going to go, yay, yay, here's Hosanna to the son of David, and then they're, then they're going to go crucify him and favour a murderer in his place. He knew all this, and yet he wept over these people because he knew their eternity. The things for your peace, he said, uh, even these last days, had you known the things for your peace. Now he's speaking there not about a temporal peace, but a supernatural peace, a spiritual peace. The example of that is in John 14, verse 27. Jesus said, I leave peace to you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives I give to you, let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be timid. And so this peace that he was speaking of that they did not have was the peace that comes with the restoration of the one to God. It was nothing to do with the invading armies or the, the armies that were you know, surrounding all the history of being in wars and takens and periods of peace. He wasn't talking about that whatsoever. Jesus' peace... There's nothing like the world can offer. How does it differ? How, do, how does this peace that Jesus offers and so desired for his people in Jerusalem, how does it differ? Well, in Romans 5, chapter 1, it explains it very clearly. Romans 5, verse 1, sorry. Then being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have your relationship with the Lord restored through the sacrifice of Christ and admitting him as your Lord and Saviour, then you have that peace and wars can be raging around you. Your house can burn or be demolished. There will be moments, of course, our human nature will step out of that peace from time to time. That's the world. That's just the reality of it. But if you have that peace within you, 
your being will always go back to that place and in the middle of disaster, in the middle of tough times, you will be able to find that peace if you focus your eyes upon Christ. Because he promised, my peace I leave with you. We voluntarily step outside that peace. We allow the things of the world and circumstances to rip it from us. And sometimes it's a struggle to find it again. But it is always there if we will turn back and focus on Jesus. It was always there. And so he was weeping for the people because they did not, he knew that many of them were going to perish. That connection with God was never going to be restored. And that just the compassion of Christ came out and he wept. Have a look at Matthew chapter 9 verses 36 to 38 and you'll see more of this great compassion. Matthew 9 verses 36 to 38 reads, And seeing the crowds, he was moved with pity concerning them because they were weary and scattered like sheep with no shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is great, but the workers few. Pray then that the Lord of the harvest may send out workers into his harvest. There's this wonderful compassion for the lost. And you know, that compassion found us. We were the recipients of this great love and compassion. Jesus would have wept for us in our unsaved state. And he found us. And he called us. And he gathered us into his Father. This wonderful compassion and love. Truly the harvest is great, but the work is few. So how does this relate to us, this compassion that Christ has? This great love for those that are perishing. How does it relate to us? In 1 John chapter 2, a couple of scriptures to illustrate this, how it, how it relates to us. 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 says... We truly love God only when we obey him as we should, and then we know that we belong to him. If we say we are his, we must follow the example of Christ. Now the example of Christ is a, covers the spectrum of things, the compassion and love being one of those aspects. And as Christians, we often say, you know, we're aspiring to be more like Christ. That is our goal, to be more like Christ while we're on this earth, and finally to be with him. And so if we are to be more like Christ, then we must be exhibiting the very things that he exhibited when he was here. He said that he's given us gifts that have power. That's one of the aspects of Christ um, that we we are like. He said we, we have access to these things. He said that um, we would do some greater things. It's, it's just amazing what he said, that we would be available to us through him. All these things are only through him, though. We must be in the will of his Father in order for these things to function righteously because spiritual gifts can and are being abused in the world today by people claiming to be Christians, they have got power and they are abusing it. <clears throat> We've only got to look at some of the monuments to 
man that preachers have built glass cathedrals and Lear jets and all these sorts of things that have been paid for out of tithes and offerings to see how gifts and God's provision has been abused. But we, if we say uh, we are his, must follow the example of Christ. Who what, rode into the city on a colt? His feet would have been dragging on the ground, those things. So he would have looked not very glorious. Wouldn't have been cool. And here's the humbleness of our saviour. All the, all the glory and power he had at his fingertips. If we are his, we must follow the example of Christ. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. There's another thing that uh, instructs us in this way. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21 reads, For you were called to this, for even Christ suffered on our behalf, leaving behind an example for us, that you should follow his steps. It's very, very clear. There's no grey area here as Christians how we're meant to deport ourselves and how our lives, in which direction our lives are meant to be going. It's only when you take your eyes off Christ and start to follow the ways of your own wisdom then things start to go screwy. And keep your eyes on Christ and follow his ways. And yes, you'll run into opposition and difficulties, but you will be given everything that is sufficient for you to overcome. You're already, he has already overcome the world. He's already overcome all these things. And in him, we are these overcomers. Stuff will come against us. The closer we draw nearer to Christ, probably the more attention you're going to get from the enemy. Because if you're just a nominal Christian that... You know, as a church attender, enemy's not going to bother with you. You're no threat. You're not going to save souls. You're not going to make any impact upon the realm of darkness. You're not going to increase you know, the harvest. So you probably have a fairly cruisy life. You can go along to church and be these things, but it's not following the way. Christ didn't have a cruisy life. He knew what was coming, and yet because of his great love for us and the great love he had for his father, he obeyed and he followed that path. And look, he didn't want to do it in one respect. If, if this cup could pass from me, Father, as any other way. But he knew there was no other way. And he was faithful in his love and his direction. And we are called to be faithful in the same way that Christ is. leaving behind an example for us that you should follow in his steps. Okay? All pretty wonderful stuff. Now we're going to get to the difficult part. Are we following in his steps or just sitting in his seat? Now, again, I'm speaking as a fellowship. I'm not speaking as individuals. The fellowship is made up of individuals but we come together and becomes greater than one somehow. It's a wonderful thing and it's well worthwhile doing a study on fellowship and what the Bible says about it. 
but I speak as a fellowship. Are we following in his steps or are we just sitting in his seat? Are we just actually doing the things that these scriptures have told us? Or are we listening and to his word and taking it all in and sort of just sitting in the seat that Christ has provided. Go to Haggai chapter 1. <clears throat> this could be one of these rare beasts, I think, a fairly short sermon from me. Haggai chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. So says Jehovah of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that Jehovah's house should be built. Now, let me make this clear. The context of this scripture is totally different from what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I'm talking about the principle that the scripture is speaking about. I'm not trying to apply this to a, a, a saying this is the situation, what I'm saying is there is a principle here, I believe, that can help to explain what I'm trying to get across. So says Jehovah of hosts, saying, this people says, the time has not come, the time that Jehovah's house should be built. Then came the word of Jehovah by Haggai, the prophet, saying, it is time for you yourselves to dwell in your finished houses, and shall this house lie waste? And now, so says Jehovah of hosts, set your heart on your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You dress, but no one is warm. And he who hires himself out hires himself for a bag full of holes. So says Jehovah of hosts, set your heart on your ways. Go up the mountain and bring wood and build this house, and I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, says Jehovah. As a fellowship, we do not want to be included in the people who draw near with their mouths and yet and honour God with their lips, but our hearts are far from him. We don't want that. It's the end of that scripture. Honour me with their lips, draw near with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. That's a, not a good state to be in as a Christian. And yet, I feel in the Christian world today, there are many like that. And it's a tragic thing. Because it all the sacrifice that Christ made to draw us near to God once again has been watered down and compromised. And it's easy to sing the words. It's easy to say, Hallelujah, God is great. It's easy to, to say these things, but if our hearts are far from him, they mean nothing. And... Our hearts become far from him if we do not follow Christ 
in the ways that he has told us to follow. We, that, that's, that's, you become a religion then. Not a living, wonderful, joyful exhibition of a fellowship that loves their Lord. You become a religion. And that's a danger for every gathering. It's a danger for, and it's, we've seen it happen. Religions have caused so much hurt and so much evil because the words are spouted, but the hearts are cold and far from God. We need to make sure that we never get to that position. Allah is with our lips, but our hearts from him. I'd like to give you a little history of this fellowship. History and legacy. Now, Glenn, well, when it started, it started out of the Martin AOG, and Ray Perry was the pastor. Ray and Ann Perry were very involved in outreach and evangelism, and this is why this fellowship started. And then Ray left, or was going to leave, and as part of the AOG structure, they brought in another pastor, who was Glenn. Now, Glenn wasn't the one that was meant to be here. And there was a great uproar when Glenn was hired, and a lot of people left um, because of his manner and style and age. Glenn had a wonderful heart for the lost. Absolutely loved people. And he was, as a pastor here, he would have a day off or a day and a half off. His idea of a day off was to wander out his gate or stand out at his gate as people walked past and invite them in so he could tell them about Christ. He had a love and a compassion for the lost. Wasn't the greatest of teachers, but he loved God. And this is one of the legacies that was left to this fellowship because his circumstances with his son dying and cancer throughout the family was tragedy, absolute tragedy, the number of people that were affected in his family by evil disease. His love for God never wavered and his love for people never wavered. Going through all these things, he would still be talking about the goodness of God to people and his son's just died, three-year-old just died. But he would still talk to people about the love that God has. And we were very fortunate because he left that as a legacy for this fellowship. And then we got Murray, who um, was a great lover of God's word. And it was because of Murray that we endeavour that only God's word is spoken from this pulpit. That's, um, we were taught uh, that you sort of leave the experience stuff unless it fits into an illustration, but God's word has to be the primary thing that is taught. And there's different styles of teaching, and we all have different styles of teaching. We all use different personal examples, and, things, and that's fine. But when you start getting into the um, some of the fads and Christian latest things and... And when God's word is not taught, then that's not acceptable. And so this is the legacy that Murray left. And so we were blessed as a fellowship because we had these two legacies. We had this compassion for the unsaved that Glenn had and had taught us about. And we had 
the respect for God's word that only that should be promoted from the pulpit. And then we had the third strand of the Holy Spirit. And that was strength with those three things. Compassion for the lost. I've seen Kevin Rochelle deal and welcome some really difficult people over the years. We've had some strange people attracted to this fellowship. Broken, broken people. And I've seen people in this fellowship welcome them and care for them and do the best that they could for them. And this was the legacy that Glenn left us. The strength that was in this fellowship with these three things, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God being utmost and the compassion for the broken and lost was a wonderful thing. The question I ask now, do we still have these three strands working together? Or not? Again, are we following in his steps or just sitting in the seat that he has provided for us? Are we sort of a little bit it's pride coming a little bit that only God's word spoken from this pulpit. And it's a wonderful thing. But without the other aspects that Christ exhibited, that can lead us into a place that is ineffective and very self-centred. Do we need to ask this question? Do we still have these three strands? Compassion for the lost, the word of God being primary, and the Holy Spirit to strengthen them and bring them to life. Because without the Holy Spirit in this mix, there's no life. There is only efforts of man. And God's word is spoken in many, many places, and it is as dead as a doorknob. There is no life, because it's just words. There is no hearts. The hearts have drawn far from God. So we were being very blessed in this fellowship with two men that left us a legacy. And I think we need to guard that legacy and submit it to God for his examination and um, judgment. Go back to the start. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. As he drew near, seeing the city, he wept over it. As we look out on bulls, as we drive into bulls, as we walk around bulls, are our hearts wrenched at the thought that so many people around us and very close to us are going to perish because they do not know the things for their peace. Salvation, the thing that brings peace. Are our, are, are our hearts wrenched? Mine is not. And it should be. That is the hardness of heart that has crept upon me. If our hearts are wrenched at that thought, what are we doing? 
know, what are we doing about it? If our hearts are not wrenched at that thought, what are we doing? Kev's mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we're not a Lions Club. We don't come together as a Lions Club, you know, meeting together to do good things in the world. So if we take the Lions Club here and the thriving, alive church here, metre apart, right? It could be a metre, it could be a mile, it could be an eternity. And draw a line between them. Where does our fellowship lie on that line? Is it closer to the Lions Club or is it closer to the church that God desires us to be? We need to look at these things to make sure that we're not fooling ourselves in any respect. Go back to Haggai, because when it mentions um, the building of the house, there is both an illustration there, I believe, as a spiritual and physical. Do we as a fellowship care about, care about the state of the fellowship? Or have we become individuals that are not cohesive together to be as one and as fellowship is described in the Bible? Do we care about the fellowship both spiritually and physically? We need to understand how easy it is to sort of get a bit numb as the years go by and how easily you can get be desensitised to things. We need to look at Christ, say, well, if he was sitting here now physically, what would he think of our fellowship? And after he went a week later in the mail, what letter would the church and balls get? I don't know. Spiritually, are we building this church in the image of Christ who wept over the ones that were going to perish, the ones he knew were doomed to eternal damnation because they, no one had, they would not accept their salvation. There's nothing that we can do about that, whether people accept their salvation or not. But there is something we can do about making sure they hear and know of their salvation. The responsibility then lies with God and the individual. But how will they know unless they are told? How did you hear? How would you have known unless you were told about salvation? And the physical implication of the church, okay? We meet in a building. Does anyone care about that? I did a little This is just so, so silly. I did a little experiment. I've done it about three times now. I let the lawns grow. They got to over a foot long. No one mentioned it. No one appeared to care 
that it looked terrible. Um, I remember, you know, in days gone by, people would say, oh, we need to have a spring cleaning here. There's cobwebs everywhere, and that's looking tatty, and this is looking tatty. And picture this place through a visitor's eyes when they first walk in. Because we're used to it. And we're not worried, you know, I'm not saying this is God's house, you know what I mean. But this is the building where we meet to represent him and to bring, supposedly, people in to meet him. Do we care what it looks like? Now, I know the spiritual aspect is vastly more important, but it still does, I believe, the physical response reflect something of the spiritual condition. Now, I'll tell you a little bit for the last thing of the struggle I've been having for the last few months, and probably longer than that, the seeds of it. I've been with this fellowship for 30 odd years, and at the very start, for some reason, God placed a caring and a protective desire in my heart for this fellowship. And I couldn't get away from it. it was just, he just did it. I don't know whether it has God's sense of humour because I've been such an uncaring and selfish man all my life. But that's what he did. And it's been a joy to me that he did that over the years. What I've found in the last... <clears throat> couple of years, that caring and protectiveness has diminished hugely. Now, I don't know why that is. Part of it is myself. Part of it is my lack of tending that particular garden that God placed in my heart. But I've been thinking about this an awful lot over the last 12 months. And part of it, I believe, that has affected me is the lack of caring by this fellowship about its environment, spiritually and physically. And I've also been thinking, because of the attachment and the joy that I've found in this fellowship over the years, could I stay and watch it? as I saw in my own perception this is, right? You've got to believe me, this isn't God speaking, this is Mike speaking. And so my words have no value, but I need to tell you these things, and so you get the perspective of where I'm coming from. And, you know, could I bear to stay? And if my perception was right, watch this fellowship slowly die. Or did you know, I get ahead of the curve and just guard my own heart and be selfish as I've been before? And I was thinking this last week and discussing it with Marie. And <laughs> this is the joy. This is the punchline for this whole sermon. I'm sitting inside at lunchtime. I've done a half day's work. Sitting inside lunchtime. All of a sudden, the dog's nut off. And I look out, and there's two people standing there 
I don't know, at the gate. I walk out, how are you going? Girl and a guy. Guy looked vaguely familiar. And she said, oh, we're looking for the pastor of the Bulls Church. I said, oh, well, I go to the Bulls Church, but they, you know, don't have a pastor. They've got elders that, that run it. She says, oh, I've just come down to this area to visit her cousin, who was the chap. And she said, um, you know his son. You taught him the Bible in the schools, and he speaks very highly of you. And I remember the boy, because I've seen him from time to time, and she had come down because he's in a bad place and is feeling suicidal, so she'd come down to see her cousin and pray. And she said, and I came down here and felt to pray for the spiritual... Um, sort of oppression around this area and she said I don't she said and then I was God told me to find the pastor of the Bulls Church and she said and then I was told to come and find Mike Mullane he lives down there and I said okay and she said so what's going on at the church and I said well not a lot at the moment um, I said individually there's lots of people, but I said, you know, there's, there's not, we've probably shrunk a bit over the last few years, and she said, oh, she said, would you mind if I prayed? And I said, no, don't mind at all. So she prayed um, for uh, the area and the fellowship and everything. She was, she's from Wakatani or something like that. Um, and, and she said, oh, that's interesting. I just got this picture now, I don't know if you remember, but a couple of weeks, two or three weeks ago, I spoke on living waters and whether, you know, the, the flow of the living stones and the living waters that should be flowing out into the town and the salvation aspect of it. And she said, I've just got this picture of, of this great flow of water coming from God's throne, but it's gone underground and now it's starting to pop up in springs here and there and there and there. And I thought, here's my thoughts over the last week and here is the wonderful love of God to reassure me. Mm. He'd taken the sermon that I had spoken mm. and used it to illustrate my own selfishness and his sovereignty springs of living water popping up here and there and that is my belief now and my hope for this fellowship that these springs of living water are going to be popping up in this area all over the place that is the wonderful nature of God even when we are doubting even when we are struggling even when we are wondering about our future he brought someone from the other end of the country who hadn't heard what I had had to say, brought them to my house when I was there, and spoke this to me to give me a reassurance and a touch of his love. He is a pretty awesome God to care for that detail. So, Father, I pray that you would take these words and you will... The, one, the words that are spoken out of love, your love will survive 
and the words that are spoken out of my own opinions and shortcomings will die and find no place in hearts or minds. I thank you for your wonderful faithfulness to this fellowship and I pray that we may return that faithfulness in the days and years to come. Thank you, Lord.